Welcome to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Okay, yeah, when people ask uh, Lois and I where we met, we say Kabul, Afghanistan. And of course, that starts all kinds of conversations going. We were both, uh, back when we were young, we were in Youth with a Mission. Now that we're old, we're in InterServe. So i just give you kind of an idea about that. And uh, we met, uh, Lois came from New Zealand to Afghanistan, and I came from the United States to Afghanistan. And if you had a globe here and looked like halfway between, like you're going from here, going, going west, halfway between here and the east coast of the United States is Afghanistan. So we just met in the middle. And uh, we both went there to work with hippies who were on the hippie trail back in the day. You might want to Google that and find out what that's all about. And they were going out uh, to Asia to get good drugs and Eastern religions and all that kind of stuff. So we met up with these folks there, and um, uh, Lois and I became best friends in the YWAM house. And then... uh, Later on, as we were getting ready to go apart from each other, I was like, oh, wait a second, like, she's a girl and I'm a guy. Hey, we could get married. <laughs> and so we have been married now for how many years, Lois? It's been 38 years? 39 years. 39 years. <laughs> so, yeah, we have, um, we've been journeying together, and all that time has been in and out of mission, and after we got married, we knew we wanted to go back into mission. We thought it would be Afghanistan because we'd been praying a lot about it. And sure enough, God opened a door for us to go back to Afghanistan with four children. Now, my father and mother uh, back in the States were not very pleased about that uh, decision. We put this verse on our prayer card when we were first going out as a family to Afghanistan. Um, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And I, I think that that's really important because the perspective that we had was that God was going to take care of us. Now that I'm a grandfather and I think about my, my son or my daughters taking our grandchildren off to other countries, I, I, I worry a little bit about that. Four out of five of our grandkids are here in New Zealand, so it's very very handy for us. But I, I, can, I can get it. I, I understand why that was difficult. And for us, it was difficult. We had to make a choice to go to a place with small children. People said, you're taking your children to Afghanistan? And we said, yeah. Um, best I can calculate, there's probably about 12 million children in Afghanistan right now. So they hardly be noticed. And that wasn't true. They were noticed quite a bit <laughs> wearing their their shorts and their, their white skin. But we brought our family there, and uh, I think I've got some pictures here from those early days. We went to a city up in the north of Afghanistan called Mazari Sharif. Say Mazari Sharif. Mazari Sharif. So Mazar is the word for a shrine, a shrine for the nobleman. Sharif is a nobleman. So Mazar-i Sharif is the shrine of the nobleman. And this is the shrine 
to Ali, who was the, who was the um, uh, son-in-law of Muhammad. The story is told that Ali didn't want people to know where he was buried because he had a lot of enemies. And so he was put on a she-camel after he died. His dead body was put on a she-camel. I don't know if it was a she-camel, but it was. And it went to wander in the deserts. And where the camel came to stop was where he was to be buried. And so the story goes, this is where he stopped. The camel stopped. And so this is where they buried him. And that's how people say that this happened. It probably is not the tomb of Ali. In fact, I'm sure it's not the tomb of Ali. There's several tombs of Ali around the world. But this is one up in northern Afghanistan. And people, you know, they want to hedge their bets. They go to that one to pray. So it looks like it's a mosque, doesn't it? But it's not a mosque. It's a shrine. There's a grave inside there. And on the first day of the Afghan New Year's, to the side of the shrine, they will raise a pole. Have you ever heard of like a maypole? You know, when the maypole goes up? This goes to hundreds of years before Islam came to Afghanistan, which is around 800. Hundreds of years before that, they were doing this. They were putting up these, these poles. And this pole they, they raise is called the janda pole. They'll raise that janda pole, and people will be in prayer for 40 days next to that shrine praying. And then when the janda pole goes up, this spiritual energy comes out of the pole and people touch it and get healed. Blind people have been healed touching the janda pole. Lame people have walked touching the janda pole. Okay? So it's a very interesting, freaky experience. And we had the opportunity one year for that occasion to be there when the janda pole was raised up. And it was a wild, wild ride, I tell you. They had a big fence around it, and people were throwing cloths so that they could be touched on the pole and thrown back to the crowd. And then people were ripping up the cloth to get that spiritual energy. There's a lot of hunger in the world for the touch of God. People really want to know that God's real and that he will touch them where they hurt. And that's, that's these dear Afghan people. This, this isn't the Islam that you hear about, right? This, is, this isn't praying five times a day or going on a pilgrimage to Mecca or something. This is the real Islam, the heart Islam, a folk Islam, where people are trying to get in touch with God. And I think that's the same right around the world. People are always, always trying to get in touch with God. Well, this is what our family looked like. It was a, a guy down the street. He, really, he looked like Robert Redford. Okay, if any of you know who Robert Redford is. This, the photographer that took this picture, I think is Robert Redford. He might have been hiding out in Afghanistan, Mazar Sharif. And he took this picture of, I think it's a great, one of those old-timey cameras. Uh, we need passport photos, and here they are. I just, these are my favorite passport photos that i ever taken. Well, we had, we had four wonderful years there in Mazar Sharif. And I want you to know that we had thousands of days of wonderful time. We had a couple of bad days. And I'm a little cautious about telling about bad days because I don't want you to think that every day was a bad day. 
But if I tell you the story about the time I got up and I felt really good and the birds were chirping in the trees and I got my car, went to work, I had a great day at work and I came home and the kids said, Daddy, we love you and we all went to bed, you probably wouldn't be interested in that story. So I'm going to tell you some other stories, okay? And some of those stories have to do with a little thing called the Taliban who came into our town. And when they came into the town, there in Mazar-e-Sharif, they kind of pushed a lot of people out. And we were one of the people that got pushed out. The security got so bad in the town that there was no way we could stay as a family. I sent my kids out, and it was the hardest decision that we'd ever made. I sent Lois and the kids out on a Red Cross flight, and I stayed behind. Because if I had left, there would have been even more trouble for other people around us. You see, what happens is when the international community leaves in a time of fighting, there are no eyes on the bad behaviors of people. And so the Red Cross had encouraged us, if some people can stay, try to stay as long as you can. Because if you don't stay, it'll, it'll just be disaster for the local people. So we did. We, we stayed on. But it got, it got to the point where we could not, as a family, stay there. But interestingly, when we arrived in Kabul our first day in Afghanistan as a family, the InterServe a national director came to meet us, and I don't know if this happened to Sarah when she uh, went up to Bangladesh or India, but this, uh, dir this director met me and she said, um, Jim, we need you to sign two forms. One form is where you would like to be buried in the case of your death. Okay, that was very encouraging the first day on the field. And the second form was um, if you can't finish your term of service here in Afghanistan, where else in the inter-serve world would you like to serve? And I'd written down Pakistan, okay? Well, as it turns out, we had been down to Pakistan just a few months before things turned to custard up there in Mazar-Sharif, and we had put our daughter into a boarding school called Murray Christian School up in the mountains. And as we walked into the school, Lois and I both felt the same thing. We felt this tug on our hearts. Now, we've been working in Afghanistan for four years. We've been slogging it out. There was all kinds of stories, and I told some of them at, at the camp. But one of the things was that we were getting really tired, and we needed a break from living in a war zone. And we put our daughter into a boarding school and we were going to still live inside a, a, a place that was where there was fighting. And when there had been fighting, it was very difficult. We tried to communicate. We couldn't get phone conversations or anything like that going. So we felt like maybe God was calling us to work at Murray Christian School. So we came back into Afghanistan, and I started talking to the leadership. I said, I think we need to take a break from Afghanistan and go work in Pakistan for some years. I didn't know two weeks later we were going to be down in Pakistan with this evacuation. I joined the family two weeks after that, and we stayed there in Pakistan for five years. We worked at Murray Christian School, and we loved it at Murray Christian School. The school was, um, had taken over an old Church of Scotland church building that was built in the time of the Raj. And has anybody got Scottish heritage here? 
Got some Scottish people here. Man, the Scots, they know how to build a place. They built it to last for a gazillion years, okay? They really do a great job with their engineering. And this is a beautiful old building that they built. And then, of course, you know, the, the Raj was over in the 1950s, and this became a Christian school. It was decommissioned as a church and became a Christian school, and it was all renovated inside with classrooms. So we had uh, a wonderful time working there uh, for those five years. And then the situation started to unravel there. You might have heard something that we call 9-11 in the States. We were in our house in, uh, in Pakistan there at the school. Uh, we only had cable TV for two weeks of the five years that we were there. And during those two weeks was when 9-11 happened. So we watched 9-11 happening uh, live on TV. And it was, a, it was really dramatic for us. But what happened was that led to an unraveling of the security there in Pakistan. Because a lot of the groups that were fighting against the Americans or fighting against the coalition forces or doing all of this kind of stuff, they were all based in Pakistan. And they looked for ways that they could make Americans hurt or foreigners hurt. And attacking a school to them seemed like a really good idea. So on August 5th, 2002, I was sitting with a group of uh, kids. Now, I was the, oops, let me go back here. I was going to try this. I was the guidance counselor, and I had a, a group of kids right here in this set of uh, tables. Uh, I'd gone across the street with them. There's a little dairy across the street, and we'd all got sodas or Cokes, Pepsis, and whatnot, Fanta, and come back. And we were all sitting around and getting ready to have our first session for the year when I heard gunfire coming from the front gate, which was right over here. Now, that, that gunfire, I knew gunfire when I heard it. Most of the kids thought it was fireworks. But, you know, I, I used to tell people, you know, when I hear gunfire, it makes me homesick for Afghanistan. You know, because I was kind of used to hearing the gunfire over there. Okay? So, we... Uh, I realized right away we had to have a lockdown. And when all the security started getting bad, we learned lockdown procedures. We knew when you had an active shooter what to do. You lock down the building, turn out the lights, kids get under the table, and you're quiet. And so that's what we did. I had about 18 young people, year, year six or year five kids with me, and we ran up to the Elementary block, they got under the, under the tables, um, and we just prayed quietly. <laughs> and over those next few minutes, it was a terrible time with gunfire going off. It felt like it was going on for 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. It was only 10 minutes long. Um, but when it had stopped, I went out and I saw a bit of the carnage, and it was pretty sad. And as a guidance counselor, I felt a sense of responsibility that I had to protect the kids from seeing um, what they'd have to see if they came out. And it was a difficult time for all of us, of course. Um, so 
we came out and we started to um, deal with it and process that, that terrible injury. Now, as I was going up with these kids, we ran in this direction up this footpath, and then we were going up the steps to the elementary block, and right behind this little building was one of the mothers. She's a, she's a Filipina, and uh, she was coming down because she heard her son call out, and she heard the uh, shooting. Now, she, her family also worked in Afghanistan, so we knew them from Afghanistan days, and Juliet was coming down the steps right here as we were going up. And I said to her, Juliet, when we went past, were we walking or were we running? Because my memory was that we were just kind of going in slow motion. Isn't that interesting? But actually, she said, no, you were flat out running. And I think what happens is your brain goes into like this super fast sort of thing. It's taking it all in. And it, like when I do the memory, it's slow-mo. It's really weird. It's really weird. And she said to me, Jim, but who were those soldiers? And I said, what soldiers? She said, up there on the bank, up there on the bank beside the steps, I saw three soldiers, and they had their guns down on their sides. I said, Juliet, there were no soldiers up there. Now, Juliet, when she was running along that, these, uh, these gunmen, two gunmen came around the corner here, this way, and two went this way. And they were firing across this courtyard at her. And the bullets were just flying all around. One bullet knocked her glasses off. One ricocheted off a piece of concrete and grazed her hand. But that was all. I believe, we all believe, that those were angels. Those three soldiers were angels. And dude, they don't need to use the guns. They just use that angel force field. And then bullets, they don't. It's like, it's like Neo, dude. Okay? If you know what I'm talking about. Inside the building, inside the building, all of our children, now Lois and I, I had taken these children from, our, from Lois's classroom, elementary classroom. So we were up there in the classroom together. Our, four, our three, of our, three out of four of our children, one had already graduated and moved to New Zealand to study, so three of our children were in that building, and we didn't know what was going on. My daughter, Becca, who's our youngest, was in the sanctuary area that was the hall now. It's, it's part of the hall. And she was sitting there with this gunfire going on all around the building. Now, the building had been locked down and locked up. So they tried, but they couldn't get into the building. And she heard this music playing. Now, she thought I was up in my office. And she said, I thought Dad had put on one of those Celtic praise musics that he has. Because of, of, it was a language we couldn't understand what it was. And it was coming out of the rafters. 
coming out of the rafters, this beautiful worship music in another language coming out of the rafters. And she said, she and her friends, they just became so calm. And they calmed right down in the presence. She thought that her dad had put that music on. Well, her heavenly father had turned on those girls, the girls, all the girls heard it. The heavenly father turned on their ears to hear the angels singing. Pretty awesome, eh? So you've got, you know, I'm sitting there, why didn't I hear the angels? <laughs> why didn't I get to see an angel? I didn't need to see an angel. I did not see the angels. Juliet needed to see the angels, so she saw them. I didn't need to hear the singing. But Beck and her friends, they needed to hear the singing. So they did. They heard the singing. We... Um, we put together a little booklet afterwards. We started telling stories later. We, we put together a little book about the experience, and we called it Angels in the Rafters. After that story of those, those angels singing up in the rafters. And uh, Becca wrote a little thing. I wrote a little piece. But I want to read one piece that's just a beautiful, a beautiful, it's, I consider it kind of like a poem. This is written by a, a young woman. She, she's now a grown-up. <laughs> but her name's Anna Svensson, and she's, she's from Sweden. I didn't bring my glasses, so I think I can get it far enough away. There is a flower that I think is... Does jasmine come out at night? What's the flower that comes out at night? Is it jasmine or... What? It smells beautiful at night, yeah. Okay, well, the, the, the Pakistani name for that is Rathki Rani, which means the, the queen of the night. Okay, so that's the flower she's talking about here. I've always wondered why Rathki Rani opens at night. Its small, insignificant-looking buds burst into millions of pale green stars that flood the darkness with their heady perfume. If it were always day, the perfume would be trapped forever, sealed in the comfortably inconspicuous buds of everyday life. A sudden darkness shattered the daylight. The sound of bullets ricocheting in the echoes of my awakened senses. But in this darkness, you released your perfume of joy in me. You were there, subtle and gentle, soothing as the moonlight, refreshing as the dew. Now the eastern sky has turned gray, and everything, everyday life is struggling to rise. The flowers close with the fading stars. Their incense was too tender for the scorching sun. Yet even now, I sometimes can't catch a faint trace as the beauty of a forgotten dream trailing on the morning breeze. Then I'm reminded of the perfume of those days of darkness. These reminders of joy 
are what I cling to. I cannot see the stars in the daylight as the sun blinds my eyes, but they're still there. You carried me then. You will not give up on me now. It's amazing to have that kind of depth of understanding of God in the, in the place of suffering. In being in a place, six people lost their lives. None of the children, but three of our workers, um, some visitors, some of the guards lost their lives. The gunman ran off down the hill into a, a mosque where a local community knew that they were bad people coming to their community. And as they tried to uh, zero in on them, they blew themselves up. They had bags full of all kinds of uh, other ammunition they were going to use against us that they never used. How is, it that, how is it that we were all spared of that? But by the grace of God. By the grace of God and those, that beautiful perfume of Christ that came out during those terrible times. Now, when we went to compile our stories, we wanted to know what our Pakistani workers were going through too. So one of the things that we did was we had our Urdu teacher come and have a conversation and debrief with every one of the Pakistani staff. Because everybody was getting debriefed. And we needed to have our Pakistani staff debriefed. And not all of them were Christians. Some were Christians. Um, two of the guys that died actually were Christians. A couple of them were, were Muslims. And we had some Muslim workers. And interestingly, when those two gunmen went around uh, that side of the building, there was a workshop in the back. And a one of our one of our maintenance men had put his head out of the door to see what was going on, and someone grabbed him by the collar, pulled him back into the room, and shut the door. And he looked around, and there was no one. Another one of our guys who's a sweeper, he actually fell down a, a couple flights of, uh, of, uh, of a building and broke his hip one time, and he, was, he had a hard time walking. And about the only job he could do was sweep and clean. And he was running away, and he got to the fence line of the property and couldn't get over. And a guy there with a white coat, white clothing on, helped him over. And as soon as he went around to, to say thank you, the guy was gone. Now, friends, these two men are Muslims. They may still be Muslims today. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think God's just on our side? God loves everyone. And he loved these Muslim men. And just as he was showing his mercy to Juliet and to my daughter and to me in that classroom of kids and, uh, and all of us there at the school, he was showing it to these Muslim guys as well. See, that really helped my theology to see that God loves Muslim people. God loves Muslim people. Now, I'm telling this story in a very interesting time for us here in New Zealand, aren't I? Because we're all trying to process, what is it when this evil comes out and does this stuff? 
Whether, you, do you know that more, more Muslims have been killed by Muslim terrorists, many more than Christians? Our Muslim friends are suffering under this scourge of terrorism. And these guys here were trying to force some sort of political thing by attacking children, a soft target. Now, they were not successful. But one thing that happened was, is that we took the school, we, we realized uh, a couple days later there was an attack on a Christian hospital not far from us. We, we realized we can't keep a boarding school going in Pakistan in these days. We're going to have to do something. And so we called up some people in Thailand, and we said, I don't know if we said dude, but we said, we've got to bring some kids over there and finish the school year out. And they said, come on. So we went over to Chiang Mai, Thailand. We brought 75 high school kids over there. And they continued their studies that year. Now, we use the, we use the British system, the IGCSEs, you know, those Cambridge exams and all that kind of stuff. That year, when we finished the year out, we had had the best exam results of any previous year. We're talking the second week into the school term, into the school year when this attack happened. You would say, write that year off. There's, the kids aren't going to learn that year. That's just a total throwaway. The highest exam scores that we'd ever had. In the corner over here, you can barely make it out right there, is a little baptismal font or a little, bas a little, a little pool that we fill up. And every year, we would invite students who wanted to be baptized to be baptized. Okay? Well, this should warm the heart of every Baptist in this room. Usually, we get two or three students that say they want to be baptized. And that's always a wonderful experience to come out there. In Thailand, we went to the Juniper Tree um, Christian guest house to their swimming pool at the end of the school year. And we had 27 kids for baptism. The baptismal service went on for two hours of testimony after testimony. Man, is that cool? See, what people intend for evil, God takes that very thing and turns it into victory. He can take the darkest things and turn them into that light, that fragrance that comes out in the night. He has done this amazing work in our lives there. And I want us to think about that. Because I, I, we went out. Now, I'll tell you one thing. I, we, we did have to use that second form about where we'll go, you know, when, if we can't stay. The first form of where we're going to be buried, we never got to use. And I'm very thankful. Now, that wasn't true for everybody, okay? But we, we went there for, we were in Afghanistan as a family for, for 12 years, in Pakistan for five years, had this attack. God 
protected us. I don't, we don't know why. We, we had a lot of people praying for us. We were praying, but God's protection was there. And he didn't have to do that. Some people I know passed away there, got, got shot. But we had that sense of underneath are the everlasting arms. Now, you may think it's crazy to go to Afghanistan with your family. You know, I think there's maybe some people who think it's crazy to go to Huntley with your family. Could be. There could be some. I think that's crazy. Okay? Just go up there on the North Shore and chill sort of thing. But I want you to know you can go anywhere with your family if, he's got, if God's guiding you wherever you are because he is our refuge and underneath he's holding us up. And I've seen that. I've seen that time and time again. So to just bring all this to the close, we're, we've been very thankful as a family, but Lois and I especially. When we go back and look, we had a, a couple stories from Afghanistan I told at, uh, at Easter camp. And I got to tell you, it just, we, we just can't believe all these amazing things that God's done in our lives about some wonderful stories of people's lives that have been touched. But one of the girls there in that, that day, I actually, her, her younger brother was, was with us. She's a Pakistani, from a Pakistani family, Christian Pakistani family. Her, her father is a, runs a, a Christian hospital in a very difficult part of the country. And I was back teaching some classes uh, in a Bible college down in, in Rawalpindi a few years ago. And he said, oh, Jim, you got to come up for the weekend. And, and we came up to the, to, the, to the place there. It's a beautiful place. And at the church service at the, at the chapel in the, in the hospital on the weekend, he said, oh, and here's Jim. And he was the one who had our son Suleiman with him and took him inside when the Murray attacked. And he saved our son's life. I never thought about that. But here are these kids that today are alive. And one of those kids, his older sister, was given a full scholarship to Harvard University. And Lois and I had the distinct privilege of meeting her and buying her lunch at Harvard while she was doing her studies there when we were visiting at home. And she sat down and she said to me, the first thing she said was, I just want to thank you for what you've done in our lives and how you helped us. We were having such difficulties as teenagers. Now, you may never hear that, bro. You may never hear that. But that is there for us. God is faithful. And when we step into these places, these difficult places, he is faithful, that it's not just us that are under those everlasting arms. It's those that we're ministering to. And I don't know what we're going to see in the great beyond. I don't know what we're going to see of all the different people that have been touched by how we've all touched. But you realize that we in this room represent testimonies of others that have touched our lives. And may we be that to others. May we be that touch into other people's lives.
to bring the goodness of God to them, I pray. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.